What's a speed trap? <laughs> Maybe you've been caught in one before. Uh, the uh, I just read this week that uh, in Sarasota, just north of us here, is the most notorious nation and uh, most notorious city in the nation uh, where you might encounter a speed trap. Uh, I remember as a child, my dad uh, would uh, make have my my mom make a list. We used to travel. We lived in Ohio. We used to travel to every year to Florida for vacation, and my dad would have my mom make a list of the cities along the way and that was before 75 went all the way and you had to go through certain little towns uh, of the ones that were known to have speed traps and have the list available so he every uh, along the way she could remind him to slow down because he was really conscious of a speed trap I remember Livingston Kentucky I think was one of those places that even as a child I thought oh better slow down Wikipedia says a speed trap exists wherever traffic enforcement is focused on extracting revenue from drivers instead of improving safety, made possible by speed limits posted below the prevailing flow of traffic. So what they tell us about a speed trap is that a speed trap is a place where the law is being enforced, but it's not really about improving safety, it's really about making money. That that's what... It, the purpose is so someone maybe is using the law for uh, their own purposes in a way that's not really the law was not really intended to be used so as I said my dad didn't like speed traps and you might not either and as I read through the definition of a speed trap and I thought about my dad I thought that's exactly what he didn't like about them he wasn't a fellow that liked to try 90 miles an hour it wasn't you see person that didn't respect the law, that didn't think we ought to have speed limits. He thought enforcing the speed limit was okay. But he was conscious that there were those individuals who were more interested in making money than really making the road safe. In a sense, my dad's assessment, and maybe yours as well if you look at it the same way, is that the law ought to be used lawfully. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to continue reading in the text that we've chosen as our theme uh, for this year, and particularly even for this month, in the first chapter of 1 Timothy. Paul says this to Timothy, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say, what they are saying, or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the glorious gospel of our blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. What Paul's referencing here in the beginning of verse 6, as we talked about last week, is that they were Timothy had been told to tell the teachers in Ephesus to teach no other doctrine because the purpose of the commandment of God is to produce love. And we talked some about that last week. It was love that flowed from a pure heart, from the good intentions of a good conscience, and the aspect of having genuine faith in God. That love was to come from those particular elements of a person's life and that the commandment of God was for that very purpose, to produce love. But what we recognize from reading the rest of the passage is that there were some teachers in Ephesus, you see, who had swerved away from that. 
The word swerved here means to miss the mark, or it implies the aspect there's a road that's been traveled, just like you're traveling down the road and you swerve off the road. That there was a purpose in mind in the commandments of God and the law of God, but those who were teaching the law itself among Christians at Ephesus had swerved off of that, and now they were using the law unlawfully. They had spent their time teaching useless things, what he calls idle talk, speaking confidently about things that they knew nothing about and proposing that that was the law of God. What he presents here is individuals who are saying things with all confidence, yet they don't know what they're talking about. Ever run across people like that? You, you listen to them for a while and they act like they really know what they're talking about and they really know what's going on, but after you listen for a little while, you say, you really don't understand, do you? And that's what Paul ran into and what Paul warned Timothy about and those who were teaching at Ephesus. Well, what were they ignorant of that they spoke so confidently about? What was it Paul wanted to speak about that ultimately would change the way that they taught? Well, in verse 7 he says there that they desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So he says what they want to do is they want to teach the law, but that's what they really don't know anything about. Now, if Paul's referencing the Jewish teachers, those who who in the times of Jesus were known as scribes in the text, and maybe some of those who've been converted and now were believers, or those who became in a position to be teachers at Ephesus, if that's who he's referencing, then they weren't individuals who were ignorant of the law in the sense that they didn't know what the law was, or that they had never run into it, or they'd never studied it before. They prided themselves on what they considered to be their knowledge of the law. And they pride themselves on their literal ancestry from Abraham and the fact that they, of all the individuals around them, kept the law of Moses. So there's a bit of irony in Paul's statements here that he would talk to them about being ignorant of the law, speak about things they don't know about, and then reference the law when that was that they most thought that they knew most about. Now that comes to play in the book of Acts as we, as we trace through the story of the, of, the, of the preaching of the gospel, particularly as it intersects with Paul's mission to preach the gospel, is that there were many along that pathway, Jewish teachers and Judaizers who were insisting that the Gentiles keep the law of Moses to be saved. They failed to understand the place of the law in terms of the whole revelation of God, and it's particularly its connection with the preaching of the gospel and, and the work of Jesus Christ. And whenever Paul encountered this aspect of where one individual was telling another individual you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law of Moses to be saved, to be justified, you can't be a Christian without first becoming a Jew, Paul opposed it at every turn. He gave not an inch to that teaching. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 16, Paul said, A man not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then down in verse 21, he says, If the righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain. I think I'm ahead of myself. Yes, I am. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, uh, in verse 1, right of Hebrews, you see, reference the same teaching. That is, that the law itself was a temporary thing to bring us to Christ. The law was, he says, a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, and they can never with these same sacrifice which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For it's not possible, he says in verse 4, that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Now that certainly is what we recognize about the teachings of the apostle and all of the apostles, and even the writer of Hebrews here as we reference that text about the place of the law of Moses in the scheme of God's redemption and in the revelation. 
that those who taught that the person must keep the law of Moses to be saved were wrong. And that certainly the law was not an end in itself and the sacrifices and the things that attributed to the law forgiveness were temporary and certainly to be replaced by the spiritual reality of Jesus' own sacrifice. If one can be justified by law-keeping, then should we abandon the teachings of the law? Or if one cannot be justified by law-keeping, should we abandon the teachings of the law? And that again was a prominent question that came to be. Is the good news of the gospel contrary to the teaching of law and to the law of God, where God would command individuals to be saved? And again, we recognize there's a consistent answer. Just as he answered the question of whether or not a person would be justified by works, Paul also consistently answered the question of whether or not the law was valuable by saying, yes, it is, that the law is good. Is the law sin, he says in Romans chapter 7? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. In verse 12, he says, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment, holy and just and good. In verse 22, he says it again, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And then he writes to the Galatians, he says, Is the law then against the promises of God? He says, Certainly not. We're going to discuss the context of those passages to some extent this morning. But recognize first that Paul says both. That a person is not justified by keeping the law of Moses. They're justified by his faith in Jesus. And he also says... In answer to the question whether the law is valuable, certainly it is, and the law is not to be thrown out, that the law is holy, is good, and it's just. And that's what Paul says here in 1 Timothy chapter 1. The law is good. But we know, he says, that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Now the teachers, as we mentioned, the teachers that Paul references here that he's warning Timothy about, were not using the law lawfully. Interesting that there are sometimes in the in the translation of the scriptures out of the original language where there are plays on words that we don't really see because we don't see the original words. Here, that's not so difficult to see. That what's presented here by Paul is a play on words, both maybe in the English but as well in the original language. The word nomos is law. It means laying something down, making it. You see, making someone responsible to it. And the, and the other word you see that's presented here, in connection with that, is nominose, which means legitimate, or to do something in a legitimate way. So what does Paul say they were not doing? He says they were not using the law lawfully. Just like the policeman in the speed trap, the problem was not that it was not important to keep law. The problem is not that the law was wrong or that the law ought to be changed or that law should be disregarded, but rather it was the use of the law, how the law was being presented to individuals, the law of God. And, and, it's, and, and as we talked about last week, the fruit or the product of the law being what God intended. And so they emphasized the compliance of the law for the wrong reasons, to the wrong end. As Paul points out elsewhere among the Jewish teachers that Familiarity with the law produced just the opposite result that it should have. And we'll see that as we try to make some conclusions about what the true purpose of law is, as Paul presents it here in this text. But what it did among the Jews many times, and the fact that they were the ones who received the law, and that they were, as they, particularly those who studied the law and translated it into language and copied it, is that that familiarity with the law produced an arrogance. It produced a, an attitude that says, well, we know what God wants and you don't know what God wants. It produced not only arrogance, but it produced a hypocrisy, which betrayed the very purpose of the law itself. 
In Romans chapter 2, when Paul begins to evidence that the Jews were just like the Gentiles that he'd already talked about, that they were all confined under sin, that they were individuals who had fallen short of the glory of God and needed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he says, you're confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth and the law. You see, desiring to be teachers. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? You see, that's the way it had turned out. And that's the way sometimes it turns out too, even today. That those who are most familiar with the words of the law become arrogant and proud about the law and become ultimately breakers of the law. R.L. Whiteside comments on this passage are rather compelling. He says, Is there not danger that we fall into a similar state of mind? We have the Bible, we abhor creeds, we glory in the name we wear and feel able to teach the whole world. Are we not inclined to be proud and arrogant? Should we not rather feel humble and ashamed that we've not made better use of what we have? He makes a point because the danger still is present. And as Paul writes to young Timothy, he's making it clear to him that these teachers sometimes that may very well be very popular or at least be able to express in many ways what the law actually said are using the law unlawfully. And what he goes on to say helps us to understand what he means by that. He says, the law is not made for a righteous person, in verse 9. Now we might notice in the text itself, this is the second time in two verses where Paul uses the word I do, which means I know. And he uses it in the aspect of rhetorically saying, certainly it is true that we know. So he's reminding Timothy here, in opening up both of those phrases, that there's something here that you already know. You already know that the law is good. Timothy certainly did. He'd been brought up knowing the teachings of the, of the Old Testament by uh, his, those who looked after him, his mother and his grandmother. But he says, he goes on to say, you also know that the law is not made for a righteous person. Do you know that? That's what Paul says Timothy knows, is that their law is not made for a righteous person. Well, what does Paul mean by that? How is it that we are to know that or should know that the law was not made for a righteous person? What's he telling us about God's law in that statement? There are some who contend that Paul is simply renouncing the place of law in the life of the Christian. Is that what he's doing here? Those who you see are persuaded that Calvinistic teaching is true, that once a person becomes redeemed, he could never be lost, and that a person is saved not by doing things that are right or by following the commandments and conditions of salvation, but he's saved by the imputed righteousness of Jesus to his own life, those who take that, those positions as being true, it's easy for them to conclude that when it comes to the Christian, the law has no place in the life of the Christian. He's redeemed. He's safe before God. So what does it matter? Does it make any? What difference does it make if God commands something? Because He could not even violate that command of position that He's in in order in such a way so as to ever be lost. But that's certainly false. Not only from the aspect of the teachings of Calvinism that can be refuted in many different ways by what the text actually says. But Paul himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 21 says that he was under the law toward Christ. He never denied the aspect that even in his life before God as someone that was redeemed and even apostle that he wasn't subject to the law of God. And what the Bible certainly teaches is that the Christian as well is under the law of God and he is held accountable to it. And he must well choose to obey it or to disobey it. 
In John's statement in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, he says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. In the second epistle, he says, This is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from, begin- from the beginning you should walk in it. So he says, walking in the commandments of God, John says, is a part of living before God, walking in the light of being a Christian. We consider the aspect of righteousness as it applies to the giving of law. We go all the way back to the beginning and recognize that when God gave the first law unto man, He was giving the first law unto those who were still righteous before God. When Adam, when Adam and Eve received the law of God to not eat the fruit, they hadn't violated that commandment yet, and therefore they were expected to obey it and were responsible to God's law even though they were at that point without sin or righteous. So Paul's not teaching that the Christian's not under the jurisdiction of law or that once a person becomes righteous that the law means nothing to him. He's rather saying, you see in this, that the law has a specific purpose that applies to those who are unrighteous. God's word for made in verse 9 literally means to laid out, to be laid out or to lay down. And I think that's interesting. The ESV translates it as the law is not laid down for the just. It is, that particular word is used two other places and is translated as appointed or intended for. Which again gives us an additional understanding to what Paul's saying about the nature of the law. That God's law is not intended for the righteous person or it's not appointed for the righteous person but rather for the lawless. Well, how is that true? How is it that the law of God is not intended for the righteous person but for the lawless? When I thought about that for a little while, uh, an illustration came to my mind. I'll share it with you. I don't know how good it is. Sometimes you know about my illustrations. They lack something sometimes. But uh, I, As many of you know, I've umpired baseball for many years. And I remember way back when I was umpiring youth ball, I was on the, I was on the field making calls, and there was this strange play where the base runner on first base ran, ran around second base, and then he thought the guy dropped the ball, so he retreated back and pitched the base, headed on the way back to first base, and then he turned around and went back. This is what happens in youth ball. He turned around and went back to second base. They threw the ball to second base, and the, he, he, he came in. His ball beat him there before the bag, and I called him out. And I thought, wow, what a weird play that was. But I was pretty sure I got the call right, but here comes the coach. That happens a lot. Coaches come out and they want to know about the play. But this interesting about this play is the coach had the rule book in his hand. Well, you've you got to give a little sway here. The, the, the protocol for umpires is if a coach brings a rule book out, you send him back to the dugout with a rule book in his hand. You don't even let him bring a rule book out. But I let him bring the rule book out. Come on, bring the rule book out. So he brought it out. And he hands it to me. He says, I don't understand why this runner's out. You need to show me in this book why you made that call, where the rule is. Well, I knew where the rule was. I even knew the number of the rule. I don't, tell, don't ask me why. I studied that stuff way too much. But I knew where the rule was. It said if the runner went back across the bag and then retreated back to first base, that the force was reinstalled on the play. And he could be thrown out by force play. He didn't have to be tagged. So I turned to the book. And this guy's eyes about this big. When I grabbed the book for him and started looking, he thought, do you really know where the rule is? Most coaches don't think umpires know the rules. Some of them don't, but this one I knew. So I turned to the rule book and I showed it to him. Right there it is. See what it says? And I had him read it to me. He brought the book out. He can read it. So he read it to me. He took, closed the book, turned around and walked back. Now, my reason to point out that illustration is this fella thought that the rule, the law, 
was going to do him some good. He thought that he could use the law to his advantage, that he could bring it out and show me the law and somehow that would exonerate or get his way with the thing. And actually, just the opposite was true, was it not? That when he brought the rule out and showed it to me, it became that which instantly condemned him. There was nothing else to say. Once I showed him the rule, his mouth was shut. He had to go back. There was no other argument. There it was. So the law itself, you see, was not made for him because he'd violated the rule, or at least his player had. The law was not to his benefit. Now, if he'd been right about it, and I was wrong, that'd have been different, but that wasn't the case, you see. So the law itself, you see, is not made for the person who's done nothing wrong. It's not made for the righteous person. It's made and has its impact for the person you see who's actually violated that law. Now, I think that the aspect here of understanding this principle goes, in a spiritual sense goes deeper than the rules of baseball and the penalty that's there. But what was there before the gentleman was not only what condemned him, but the penalty that would come. And what that rule book was, and maybe he thought of it, pondered that as he went back to the dugout, is this thing didn't help me. All it does is identify when someone breaks the rules. And that's what it was. It was a book that identified when somebody broke the rules. And so that's what the law is all about, is it not? The law is made for a righteous person because the law itself, you see, is appointed to condemn sin, not justify the sinner. So you can't get just before God by just doing things that are in the law. Once you fail to do anything that's in the law, then you become a sinner. And what the law does to you from then on is condemn you, not justify you. So once a person crosses that line, the law is powerless to make him anything other than unrighteous. And that's Paul's point several times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, now we know that whatever the law says, it says of those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, he says. Notice the end of that verse. By the law is the knowledge of sin. One of the inherent reasons that the law is not appointed for the righteous person is that the law's purpose is to make known sin. And so using the law lawfully is not to teach that one is justified by law keeping, but that one is condemned by law breaking. If I take the law and I show it to someone for the purpose of showing them that they've broken the law, that I'm using the law lawfully, that's what it's for. If I take the law to someone, I show it to them and say, now you do this and you'll be righteous before God, and just keep doing this and you'll, be, you'll continue to be righteous before God, I'm using the law unlawfully. Whether we talk about the law of Moses or whether we talk about any law, because God never intended law-keeping to be the avenue through which individuals be justified before God. That doesn't mean that law-keeping is irrelevant or that it's not related to establishing righteousness before God. Certainly it is. But the law doesn't help us. It just leaves us helpless as individuals that have violated the law. It leaves us guilty. And that's what Paul says here. He says that, you see, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. That every mouth may be stopped. 
The law takes away the ability of a person to justify himself. To say, well, I'm not really a bad person. I can be right with God on my own. I can do this on my own. I'm really not all that bad. The whole world stands before God as condemned. And that's what Paul says the law was all about. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4, that sin is a transgression of the law. And so law makes that known. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Paul says that sin is made known through the law. I didn't know what it meant to covet unless God had said, Thou shalt not covet. And what he goes on to say is that the identification of sin within the law provides an opportunity for the excitement of the temptation to commit the sin and therefore the law itself in a way, you see, makes it the occasion present for the violation of sin. And so he says later on in that chapter, sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and, it, and by it killed me. But then he concludes later on in verse 13, sin through the commandment, was, sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. That might appear as sin. It might have been very sinful. That was made known through the law. Paul told the Christians in Galatians, again going back to chapter 3 verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for, for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? There's that question again. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could give life, true, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined us all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now notice two things that Paul says. He says that the law was added because of transgression. It was a violation of law. God said don't do this and people did it. And so there was a need for the law to make known that individuals were violators of the, trans- of the law of God. And he says to make known what was sinful so that all could be confined under sin. To say that we are all in the same situation. We are all sinners and cannot redeem ourselves. Now that was a vital point for Paul to make to those who believe they could be justified by the law of Moses. But it extends not just to the law of Moses, but to any aspect of the, of the element of law keeping. That, that the law of Moses was designed, Paul says later on, to, uh, as a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Oh, if the Jews could just understand that, but here they were using the law unlawfully, talking about things they didn't really understand because the law was intended to bring them to Christ, and they were rejecting Christ. They thought they could be saved without Christ, when the very purpose of the law was a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. You see how mixed up that was? And how much that would have infuriated and certainly perplexed Paul who understood the purpose of law. So what's he say? The law is not for the righteous person. It's not for the make a man perfect before God by law keeping. But the law you see is for the lawless and the disobedient. Often Paul utilizes a not this but this format of argument. And that's, that's, that's a very common way in, uh, in other places in the Scripture for a point to be made. That you emphasize a positive truth through the use of a very strong negative. It's not this, but this. The law is not for a righteous person, but it's for a lawless and disobedient person. That's not the discount that law is worth nothing, but the aspect here that it has a certain purpose. And to emphasize that purpose. Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Was he telling those people, though, you really don't need me, you're okay? <laughs> That's the last thing he was going to tell them. They were complaining that he was spending so much time with sinners, and they were sinners themselves. But Jesus said, 
The doctor himself is not for the healthy person, but for the sick person. Why? Because the primary responsibility of his doctor is to heal the sick. Does that mean the doctor doesn't in any way come into play if you're a healthy person and you want to maintain your health? No, you might see the doctor once in a while. You might ask for his counsel, his guidance, maybe even his treatment. But the purpose of a doctor is not to treat healthy people, but sick people. So it is with the law. What Paul's telling us is that the main purpose of law, you see, is to condemn sin, to make sin known, and to restrain the wickedness that's in the world and that's around us. But why is that so? Why is that so important? Because you and I won't ever come to Jesus if we don't see ourselves for who we really are. We won't ever come to Christ unless we are first tutored to Christ by the purpose and the action of law that condemns us as sinners. And so it's a necessary ingredient to the gospel, is it not? That individual would come to understand the place of law. Now that's interesting because that's exactly where Paul goes. What follows in verses 9-11 through is this long list of those who the law was primarily appointed to. It's not for the righteous person, but it's for these folks. He says, For the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those who strike their mothers and fathers, for murders, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You ever see any of that stuff? You know any of those folks? We live in a world filled with that type of activity. Filled with sin. And it's significant, I think, to notice that Paul's list parallels the Ten Commandments. At least some suggest that's true in both substance and order. It sort of follows the first three doublets of verse 9 point to one's relationship to God. His holiness found in the first three commandments. To have no other God before thee, not take the Lord of God's name in vain. And so the, there's the ungodly and the profane person that's in the list. And then the following individual descriptions that Paul uses here point to the fourth through the tenth commandments that regulate one's responsibility to his fellow, fellow man. The aspect of lying and sexual immorality. These are the very things you see that are pointed out in the Ten Commandments, the very heart of the Law of Moses, that these folks over here in Ephesus were saying, oh yeah, we know about the Law, let us teach you about the Law, and they do nothing about what the true use of the Law was in getting rid of these sins in people's lives. One reason, because they were practicing themselves these very things. They were debating and theorizing about law and what this meant and what that meant in idle talk when they should have been exposing and reproving sin because that was the way to use the law lawfully. That's what it was for. And what about us? When you read this list of lawbreakers, you suppose that we need to use the law lawfully today? Does any of this stuff exist? And if it does exist, how's the Christian to approach it? Is it only to be approached with the aspect of teaching about love and mercy and kindness? Or somewhere along the line, does someone need to say something about what the law of God says about these very things? Paul connects the list of lawbreakers to the gospel of his day, even though it parallels the Old Testament law. He connects it to the people of Jesus' of, of Timothy's own day and our day when he says in verse 11, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine and according with the glorious gospel of our blessed God. That's what Paul was entrusted with right there. That's what he says. That's what I'm preaching is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what the law says about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is that people shouldn't sin. And here is the list of sins. I thought about that today, or the other day when I was putting this lesson together. When I heard about and saw the work of modern day lawmakers in New York City this past week. 
The depraved and evil hearts of men make a law. Pass their own law to facilitate the murder of innocent children. And then stand up and cheer and celebrate their law. What does God's law say about that? Man can propose his laws and they can say this is okay with us. This is what we will do. What does God's law say about it? The function of law is to condemn sin. Not just one sin, but every sin. And whatever men say, whatever men pass, whatever men think they think is right, God's law still stands. And so Paul stands up centuries later before, after God wrote the Ten Commandments to the young Timothy and he says, don't forget this, this is what it means to use the law lawfully. The law of God is intended to expose those who kill and murder and lie and perjure the unholy, the unrighteous around us. The law of God stands. And sin is still sin. Well, what does it mean to use the law lawfully? To use the law lawfully is to speak clearly about sin and the plight of the sinner. It is to preach the gospel with the preface that men are sinners and they need Jesus Christ. To use the law lawfully is not to rationalize, minimize, or in any way categorize our sin as though it doesn't apply. As somehow this thing doesn't mean us. The Gospels preached are the preface that every man is a sinner and that even after a person becomes a child of God, he's still amenable to the law of God. He still has to obey God's commandments. To use the law lawfully means to teach. That's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. There's a point the man wants to die and then comes the judgment. It is the voice of the words of Paul in Acts chapter 17 when he says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commends all men everywhere to repent because He's appointed a day on which He will judge the world. That's the platform from which the apostles preach the good news and the mercy of God. Is that men must repent. But there's an end to this, and that is to use the law lawfully is to point the sinner to the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's not to leave him out there condemned and feeling guilty even in his own consciousness, but to bring him to understanding that the only true solution and hope for his sin is the cross of Jesus Christ. No matter how society may accommodate the sinner, or how... The generations may pass and people will be more comfortable in the choices that they make that are contrary to the will of God. The certain truth certainly remains that the only hope that the sinner has is the mercy of the cross of Jesus Christ. Can't excuse it and rationalize it and psychologically analyze it as though it doesn't exist. The law condemns us. There it is. Take out the rule book and read it. Because if you practice these things, you stand condemned. So if we would preach what is good for bad, if we would preach what is beneficial in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can only do that by preaching law and pointing people to the Savior. In the first gospel sermon that Peter preached, he was going to deliver a message of hope. He delivered a message, you see, of mercy and love in the context of individuals in a way that they'd never heard it before. But you look at that sermon and you realize that he took a certain pathway to that teaching about mercy and forgiveness and the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you also already know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Well, wait a minute, Peter. Yes, you are a sinner. You crucified your own Savior. Why would Peter say that? Kind of harsh. You just want to make them feel bad? 
Uh, they said, what can we do? And that was the question both Peter and God were waiting for. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, in the second sermon, he said the same thing. You crucified your Lord. You put to death the Prince of Life. You should repent so the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord because the law has condemned you. Cannot be saved apart from Christ. So the law is good. The law is not for the righteous person. The law is for the disobedient, the unruly, the ungodly, the profane. Law is for the condemnation of sin. And for that very reason, the law is good. We need to know who we are so that we can come to God. Well, if you've heard the law of God, if you've read those scriptures that say this is what you should do and you're not doing it, if you've read those scriptures that say you should be doing this and you are doing it, where does it lead you? Where will you go from there? From the consciousness of your own guilt that the law, the law of God places before you. There are some people you see who retreat from all that and say, well, this, this really doesn't mean anything. I'm just going to ignore it. Or maybe they go off to themselves and find another way to soothe their consciousness about what they've done in life and they rationalize away their sin. Or they follow the dictates of society that eventually will say, it's okay to do what I'm doing. Or find others that will go along with what I really want to do and tell me the words that I want to hear. But if the law of God has its true purpose in your life and my life, it will, re- it will only leave me one place. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. Kneel at the cross. Jesus will meet you there. Can we help you while we stand?